read uh, the text uh, for you. Uh, is that better? Can you hear now? Good. Um, as we walk through it. So Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 18 through 29. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out. Turn there. If you don't, there's one in the rack in front of you. Uh, pull that Bible out and you can follow along with us. And to the angel of church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works and your love and faith and service uh, and patient uh, endurance, uh, that your latter works will exceed the first. And so what we have here are growing Christians, a growing church, a growing amount of good things. And then verse 20, but I have this against you, he says, that you tolerate that woman uh, Jezebel. Now, I doubt any mom uh, back in uh, that day would name her child uh, Jezebel, right? So let's just say it's not a popular name and uh, probably represents uh, something else. And we'll get that to that a little bit later. So who calls herself, as we continue on in the text, a, a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice uh, sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent, but she refuses uh, to repent of her sexual uh, immorality. And behold, I, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great uh, tribulation unless they repent uh, of her works. I will strike old children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and will give to each of you according to your works. But the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold uh, this teaching have, uh, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. And the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him uh, I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron and with earth, earthen pots that are, that are broken in pieces, uh, even as uh, I myself have received authority from my father, I will give him uh, the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says uh, to the churches." So, so there's a lot in this passage. So let's just talk about first things first. Let's talk about uh, the city and the church for a second. Uh, the city where this church was located is is on an important trade uh, route. Uh, most of the trade that went on um, was a strong, growing um, kind of trade. And so you can see where uh, Thyatira is um, just uh, uh, kind of sandwiched in between Pergamum and and Sardis there, and um, and so the economy in this area is on its way up, uh, very much in economic rebound. Uh, but there was a catch to the whole uh, economic thing, and the thing was is that um, you had to be a member to get into the economic trade. You had to be uh, a member of what they called the trade guild. Right? It's kind of like a, a union, so to speak. 
Uh, but each guild was under some kind of pagan god. And so in all the proceedings and feasts that, that started, they would pay homage to a, a pagan god or goddess. And so obviously there's this dilemma for the Christian tradesmen and it becomes a choice, right? We have to choose between Christ and uh, the world. All right, and then there's this mirrored, weird, uh, not mirrored, weird, uh, mix of theology and economic, economy and the government. And so just to survive in the city, you had to have a job and, and to do that, you really had to be a part of this trade guild. Right, so they have this weird mix of theology and economy and government going on, and what ended up happening was you would be required to go to these banquets hosted by the guild, and they were legendary banquets. They were legendary for their like sexual immorality that was going on there, and you can see how this could be a problem for those men and women of the day trying to live their their Christian faith. Right, they they given their hearts and their lives to Christ, believing that Jesus as the Son of God, right, trusting in Him as as their Savior, trying to live as salt and light, being separate and set apart, and the way they acted and the way they thought, and yet by the very nature of their economic well-being, they were being asked to be sucked into the immorality of the day. And I got to thinking about that. I'm like, I'm like. Well, we have the same cultural pressures in our day, right? We're constantly being told to be more tolerant, especially when it comes to economic and moral issues, right? Like you don't have to work a full day, right? You can fake it on your timesheet. It'll be okay. You can fudge a little on the expense report. Nobody's going to know, right? You can step out on your wife, Right? It's more important for you to be happy than to be moral, right? We hear that all the time. And people start with this sense of truth and they're quickly persuaded to do things that they know are flat out wrong. And that's exactly what happens to this church. They start with this understanding of the truth. That they were light. That they knew where they should stand and how to live and the correct way of following Christ. But over time, they started to tolerate some of the changes of culture. And the culture kind of imposed these changes on the church. And so we're going to first take a look and see what is said about Jesus in this passage. So, so go ahead and take your note sheets out of your program you can follow along with me. You already have your Bibles out and turn to Revelation chapter 2. And so in verse 18, we see what is said about Jesus and how he's described. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And what that simply means is that his footing is firm and his eyes are piercing. Right, drop down to the middle of verse 23 for a second where it says, I am he who searches mind and heart. And so the mind would be our thought life and the heart would be our emotional world. And here it's Jesus, firm footing, looking right through us. Right, which can be good news, right? It's comforting to know that the Lord's feet are firmly planted and he's not going to drop us or slip when he carries us. 
That that's good news as we live in a world where people look at Christians and they say things like that's weird or why would you do that? Like why would you give money and time to this organization we call the church? Right? We, we have a, a savior who sees our hearts and sees the depths of, of who we are as we love him and as we serve him. But also serves as a warning to the church. For, for those that lived lives that weren't on the up and up, who, who lived on the slippery slope of compromise and toleration. Right, it's bad news for those that are pretending to be one way, but in their heart there's something else in, in the way they think. For them, that's not good news at all. Verse 19, I know your works, your love, your faith, and your service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceeded the first. In other words, what he's saying to the church is, is you guys are doing pretty good. Right? You, you, you guys are like rock. You, you are impressive. In fact, of all the seven churches, you're like head of the class. Right? You got it going on. And we see the heart of God is to help the church, not hurt the church. God is about loving, not hating. He's about encouraging, not discouragement. He says, I'm standing firm. I'm seeing everything. And initially, what I see is a bunch of good stuff. So, good job. And then we get to verse 20. (laughs) Right? After all the good stuff that Jesus mentions... We we see in the text, it kind of takes a turn, and Jesus says this in verse 20, I have this uh, against you, right? The phrase that we've heard uh, over and over as we look at these seven churches. But but what he has seen so far before he gets there is this growing church, this church that's hitting it on on all cylinders, and and there's personal growth of, of believers going on. The church is growing numerically. The church is growing in influence in the community. And in the midst of all the good stuff, Jesus sees something wrong. And he says, this I have against you. Here's your moment of insight here, the moment of truth that we can't miss. It's don't drop your guard. And you can see how this can happen easily, right? As this church looked at itself in the mirror, what they saw what was this loving, persevering, faithful people. And as they began to think about how good they are and how strong they are and spiritually ready they are, they begin to let their guard down just a little bit. It was a hot morning in August in Hiroshima, Japan in 1945. And citizens feared the pending airstrike from the Allied forces of World War II. Many people were evacuating their belongings from their homes, making preparation for their safety. Hiroshima was one of those large cities in Japan that most people expected to raid any day. And when the air uh, raid siren sounded the morning of August 6, 1945, the city thought the attack had begun. A few minutes later, the all-clear siren sounded. Japanese radar operators, seeing only three American planes, decided that this was not a serious attack. And then a few moments later, the first atomic bomb used in war was dropped on the city. So you see, they believed that they were safe from attack, not realizing the nature of about uh, of what was uh, about to happen. And oftentimes, I think as Christians, we make that fatal mistake 
uh, of underestimating our, our enemy, right? He is vicious and he is determined. And if we let our guard down, he will strike. And I think that's exactly what went on here. But this wasn't the only church that that happened. Go back to the church of Galatia, right? Let's remember what Paul said. He came in and he ministered to these people and he preached the gospel. And a lot of them had come to Christ. And then a short time later, he gets word back that these people were following a wrong way of thinking. And so early in the book of Galatians, in fact, in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, he says this to the church at Galatia. I am astonished. That you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. What Paul is saying here is that truth doesn't change, right? Even if I come back and tell you to change it, truth is truth is truth. It never changes. Now, now let's take a look at what is said about the church. Verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman uh, Jezebel. So, so what does that mean to tolerate, right? So, so Pastor Matt gave me a book uh, this week, so I skimmed through it, D.A. Carson's book on the intolerance of tolerance, and, the, and I boiled it down to this. It means getting comfortable with things that should be uncomfortable. Just as an easy way to put it. Right? Like, like some things are uncomfortable. Bad relationships, bad morality, bad theology, right? Uncomfortable stuff. And in this church at Thyatira, they're tolerating some bad teaching. And it comes from this woman who is described as Jezebel. So, so we see in the Old Testament, First and Second Kings, there was this wicked queen, uh, Jezebel, who like single-handedly led the whole nation of Israel into the pagan worship of Baal. Right, And then in Revelation, there's this woman in the church, probably not named Jezebel, right? But she was doing the same thing. She's leading people into immorality and idolatry and preying on God's people and was very Jezebel-like, right? In other words, she was a Jezebel kind of woman. And the church tolerates this. And so we need to land here in verse 20 and 21 so we can kind of chew up a couple of things here there's a lot to digest but notice the phrase written in verse 20 uh, as we go on in the verse who calls herself a prophetess right i want you to write down in your notes who calls herself right she's referring to herself as a prophetess a, a female prophet and you can kind of feel the tension in the text here. Remember, this is Jesus who is speaking here. And this woman is standing up before the church saying, I speak for God. I am a prophet. My words are God's words. And she is saying, I speak for Jesus. And Jesus is like, I don't think so. Right? Hold the phone. She, she says, I have the word of God. Jesus says, like, I am the word of God. And so Jesus is rebuking this woman. Let's go on in verse 20. We'll see why. It's because she is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat sacrifice or food sacrifice to idols. So two more things we see here in the church that, that's going uh, sideways. 
right? They're committing acts of immorality and they're eating things sacrificed to idol. And it's interesting as we understand the early church, like this isn't the first time that this creeps into the church, right? We, we see apostle, uh, the apostle Paul's ministry in the early days, uh, questions come up in, in leadership about what to do with these new Gentile believers and, and masses of them are coming to Christ and, and, and they're like, we know what to do with those that formerly followed God in the Jewish system, but we have no clue on how to handle all these Gentiles. And so they have this big debate and, and and they have this meeting in Jerusalem and, and there's this complete endorsement given to the Gentiles who had come to Christ. And in fact, in Acts 15, key leader in the church stands up, James, right? And he says this, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and, and from blood. So they're the very uh, two things James says that new converts shouldn't do. This woman in the church of Thyatira is telling Christians, yeah, you need to do that. So, so not only is she teaching it, but now she's leading uh, people to do it. Then after the books of Acts, we get to the Corinthian church, and again, we see the same two problems. So, so this lady is like willfuling, teaching her agenda, regardless of what God has to say about it, right? It just doesn't matter to her. And so it's why Jesus so clearly says she's not a prophet. right? Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses uh, to repent. Right? I don't know about you, but if I'm like, I'm like, I'm not giving you any, I'm throwing the hammer down. But, but Jesus, he's like, what? I will give her time to repent, but she refuses to repent. I love the message paraphrase of this, and I don't use it often, but it says this, she has no intention of giving up her career in the God business. Because that's exactly what she was doing. The moment of insight here for you, going through a season of life with Everything going well may be an expression of God's patience, not necessarily God's blessing. Right? The implication for us, what does this say about the Lord that he would give some one time to repent? Well, what are we learning about Jesus that he would give a woman like this time to repent? Right? Things are going well in the church. They're, they're on this upward growth trend and, and this woman comes in and, and she has this, this teaching, this, what, what I would call bad theology and, and they could have been sucked into it thinking that she was right. Right? They could have thought everything's going well around here. How, how could this be wrong when God seems to be blessing our, our church? Because certainly if he was mad at us, he'd do something about it, right? That's kind of the thinking. Well, what is Jesus doing here? I think he's giving her time to repent and a chance to escape coming judgment. Right? Judgment was coming and Jesus is merely offering her what? Grace and mercy. And then we see one more thing about Jezebel in the church. Verse 24, but the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, uh, to you I say, I do not uh, lay on you another uh, burden. Right? So the, Jesus says they were learning about what? The deep things of Satan. That, that, that's how he puts it. Can, can, can I say this to you this morning? We are never so spiritual that we can afford to play around with the things of Satan. 
Right? The, the, these people in the church, they are on a slippery slope. And you probably know people in this boat, right? They're always looking for something deeper, something different, something new. Now, now I get Paul said and taught that there's growth in the Christian life, right? Like levels of understanding and maturity in Christ. He says when you're a new believer, you taste the milk of the word, right? And then as you go on and you mature in Christ, you move from milk to meat. But that's not what's going on here with Jezebel, right? It, it, it wasn't the meat of the word she was feeding. She's sticking her fork into a satanic steak. Because it tasted different. It sounded profound. And, and, and some of these believers are just bent on finding something new that they can sink their teeth into. And what happens is people get a taste of this or that or a new teacher or a new approach and, and or whatever. And, and, and then they get this feeling of superiority. Right? Because they think they have like insider information. Right? Insights that you and I don't have. have. And in fact, that's how exactly how cults uh, get started. Right? They hook people in by saying we have something different. We have something profound to impart. And the reality is there is nothing deeper than learning to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and strength. There it's nothing deeper than sensing the peace of Christ inside of you when your circumstances in your life are just downright horrible. Few things are more fulfilling than growing in the likeness of Christ and serving Him with your gifts and your talents and your abilities that, that He has given to you. Nothing deeper than sharing your faith with someone, making disciples and fulfilling your life mission. And let me just take a moment to summarize the four glaring errors of this false prophetess. Number one, the misuse of scripture, which is the danger of false teachers, right? They use enough scripture to be dangerous, so we really have to be on our toes. And then secondly, she grabbed authority. I read this story this past week. It was about Christian Herter, who was the governor of Massachusetts, and, and he was running hard for a second term uh, in office. And then so he has this busy morning, and he gets really hungry, and, and he's chasing after all these votes. And so he arrives at this church barbecue, and I thought, if you're hungry, that's a place to go, right? Church barbecue, and so late afternoon, and and he's hungry, and, and he moves down the serving line with his plate in his hand, and he gets to the, the, the lady serving the chicken, and she puts a piece of chicken on his plate, and, and, uh, and then she turns to the next person in line, and he says, excuse me, uh, do you mind if I, if I have another piece? I'm really hungry. And she says, sorry, I'm supposed to give one piece of chicken to each person. He's like, but I'm starved. So, so can I just have another? No. Right? You one per customer here. Governor Herter decided to throw his weight around and he goes, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of this state. She says, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. <laughs> right? Like some people think they have authority when they don't. Right, And so the woman in the text today wasn't given any authority. Right, She grabbed the authority and she calls herself a, a prophetess. And then number three, the refusal to repent. And number four, her spiritual elitism. 
right? I have this deeper things kind of mentality going on, right? And then verses 22 and 23, we see the punishment for the false prophet and her followers. But behold, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. And so the reference here to adultery is really important, right? It speaks of both sexual adultery and spiritual adultery. When, when, when these Christians, right, they honored other gods. They were unfaithful to uh, the Lord who saved them. And, and so the figure of the sickbed is, is fitting, right? They were guilty of adultery, both sexual and spiritual. And Jesus is kind of saying, you, you love an unclean bed? Here, I will give one to you. I will throw you into a sickbed. Do you, do you know what a sickbed is? It simply could be an image of affliction, or it could be literal sickness that, that, that Jesus would allow in the lives of, uh, of this Jezebel woman and her followers as a penalty for what they were doing wrong. And then in verse 23, it talks about striking her children dead if they don't repent. And so the question is whether this word children here is to be taken literally or figuratively. And so the word itself in the original language would work with either kind of, 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 of literal or figurative, right? There's nothing in the con- in the connection with its meaning that kind of helps us determine which one it would be. So if you take it literally, that, that the children shall suffer with the consequences uh, of the sins of their parents, right, which often occurs, or if it's to be taken figuratively, then it refers to those who had uh, bought into her doctrines, uh, who had, uh, that they would suffer the punishment um, as they spread those doctrines. And then the reference to the word death here would seem to be some kind of heavy judgment or plague or famine or sword or, or somehow they would be judged and, and cut off. But, but what is painfully clear in these punishments is the cancerous touch and the influence that this woman had and that it was tolerated by the church. And what we know is that there will be severe consequences but what we also see here is how deeply jesus loves the church we see the lengths that he will go to protect the church it's rather incredible right it's this is not as much about god's judgment as it is about his love for the church and his care and protection of her and then in verse 24 and 25 we see the challenge to faithful christians but to the rest of you in thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep teachings of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. And the word here indicates a long-term commitment, right? Don't run a quick sprint and then crash and burn, right? It's a marathon, not a sprint, right? We say that all the time. Don't win one spiritual battle, then lose the war. The, the challenge here is that for every believer to stay on the course, to follow Jesus the rest of the way, to hold fast until he comes. So, so how do you do that? Well, we hold on while balancing truth and tolerance, right? 
The, the problem is determining what we want to stand for and what we should stand for. And, and then the problem is, is how deeply do we dig our heels in on, on some of this stuff? How do we avoid the temptation of being like totally monks over here and being locked up in a, in a room and, and then the other end of that spectrum of just allowing whatever to go on? Right? There's a balance there somewhere. How, how do we do that? How do we determine well, the balance should be so we don't fall off the balance beam. Well, well, here are the options. One would be truth without tolerance, right? We call that legalism, right? It was the era of the Pharisees. They, they were the people that kept the rules. They, they thought it was their job to make sure everybody measured up to the standard of religion, but they didn't love God, right? The problem with that is that that position is deceptive, Because you can be a rule keeper, right? You can be a spiritual list maker, a church attender, and still not have a right relationship with God, right? You can look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're just a legalist. Because legalism suffocates and kills. Jesus describes these strict, unloving rule keepers as white gravestones that were filled on the inside with the bones of Dead people, right? Legalism is death from the inside out. And then we can get imbalanced the other way as well. Tolerance without truth, right? That's liberalism. That's like anything goes. The problem with that is that it overlooks the seriousness of sin, right? Liberalism fudges on the rules and compromises the truth and, and kind of says, you know, God wants me to be happy, Right, I'll live any any way that I want, and, and he'll understand because he wants my happiness. The problem with tolerance and liberalism is we tend to start small, and then eventually the line just gets stretched out farther and farther. And we just justify our compromises by saying we want we don't want to be narrow-minded, right? We don't want to be out. It's 2017 for crying out loud. And pretty soon we find ourselves further down the road than we wanted to be. So so where do we land? Well, I believe we land with, with truth, with tolerance, right? That's what we call balance. The example we see in the life of Christ, we find it in the teachings of the Apostle Paul. You know the story, but one day Jesus is walking down the street and he almost trips over the body of this woman that had been thrown in his path and she's undressed and and he, Jesus looks into the angry faces of these men who threw her there and, and he's like, what's the problem here? They say that this woman had been caught in adultery and the law says that she is a rule breaker and that she should die, right? that That's the truth. And they start picking up rocks and they're going to kill her right on the spot, right? The Pharisees pick truth without tolerance the the other end of that spectrum would be to let her do whatever she wanted to do and and then jesus as always found the balance right he showed compassion by not allowing her death but he took her lifestyle very seriously right he called it a sin and he told her not to do it again and so he very seriously addresses uh, her issues john 1 14 says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us And we have seen his glory and glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 
And then over in John 1, 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. How do we find that balance? How do we know where to stand? How do we navigate grace and truth? Well, I think we do it by asking ourselves a few questions. I tried to find it on the internet. I couldn't find it. But uh, one of the best sermons I ever heard on grace and truth was by Dr. Bruce Ware, a theology professor at the, the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He preached it years ago at Trinity uh, on Monroe Street and, and flat out the best sermon I've ever heard on grace and truth. If you can find that, read it. Okay? But but if you can't find it, do this. All right? Um we ask ourselves these series of questions. Question number one is, is it a major or minor issue uh, according to uh, the Bible? Now, not according to what I think, right? But but is this a major or minor issue according to what the Bible has to say? And, and my point is, is that we have a measuring stick, right? We have a standard to see what is uh, right and wrong to decipher truth from deception. It's, and, and it's not based on polls and it's not based on culture. It's based on what? The word of God. Right? It's based on what the Bible has to teach us about truth. Now, now, I understand that even in the scripture, some issues are crystal clear and some are not spoken of as much. So some issues are obviously major, while some are left on the fringe and, and apparently are minor. And this is why Bible study is so important, right? In your walk with Christ, you have to know what the text says. So, so here's the principle that we have at our church. In major issues, we're going to have unity. In minor issues, we'll have diversity. And in all issues, we're going to show love to one another. Right? Paul said, speak the truth in love. So, so there's a way to, to say things, right? And there's a way not to say things. It's like the guy who said to his wife, when I look at you, time stands still. Isn't that nice? This other guy wanted to say the same thing to his wife. You know what he said? You could have a face that could stop a clock. That's just all in the way you say it, right? You get a different reaction. Question number two. Do you have a biblical conviction about the issue? Romans 14 gives us a few insights. Verse 5, one person esteems one day is better than the other, while other esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in, in his own mind. Then drop down to 14, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he Approves. Here's the principle. If it's in doubt, then don't do it. It's like when I pick up a shirt off the floor in my closet. I don't know if it's clean or dirty, right? The principle is don't put it on, put it in the laundry, right? That's kind of what we're talking about. If it's doubtful, don't do it. Question number three. How will your decision or involvement impact an immature Believer, because what we feel might be all right might be uh, offensive to someone. Romans fourteen thirteen. Let us uh, uh, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. 
Then verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Right? So the principle here is that I have a responsibility to others. Right? Where we're not on an island. We have a responsibility to one another. So look around the room this morning. We're responsible to one another. Question number four, will this reflect my love for the Lord? Right? Well, this action, this attitude, this behavior that I'm getting ready to do, how will it reflect on my love for Christ? Right? It's like the dad who told his 16-year-old son who just got his driver's license, son, I'm so proud of you. Take the car for two hours. Go do whatever you want to do. Now, now the son could have took the car and he could have driven like 100 miles an hour and, and, and missed every stop sign and red light and peeled around every corner. Right? Could have done that. Or he, he could have driven the speed limit, took the car out, had a great time, come back home a little early. Why, why would he do that? Because he had a great relationship with his father. And when God gives us grace and forgiveness, not based on our efforts, not based on our good works, it prompts within us a love for God and a gratitude in which that love, what, restrains us. I mean, really, we can do whatever we want, but it is because of our love for him that, that, that we don't. So the principle is I must remember whose I am. So, so when I consider an activity or an attitude, it will demonstrate that love that I have for the Heavenly Father. And then question number five would be, what would my spiritual role model do? Like, what if you had to explain your actions to somebody you respected? And, and honestly, I get it. Sometimes we get caught in, in shades of gray in our walk with Christ. I mean, it's hard to figure out what to do. That, that's where a spiritual role model can really be helpful. Like I have a couple of guys in my life that I admire that are like pastor guys, right? And I've spent time with them over the, the years. And it's been helpful at times to call them and ask them, what would they do if they were in my shoes? And I would consider that. Paul knew that kind of mentoring relationship was necessary as well as he said, imitate me and I'll try to live my life in a godly way and it will be a good example for you. So so the principle here is to spend time with mature believers. It's why I really love my life group, right? I meet with these people that, that are mature believers, right? They're seasoned veterans and they speak into uh, my life. So, so let's wrap this up this morning in verses 26 through 28. The one who conquers and who keeps my works till the end. To him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and with earthen pots are broken in pieces. And even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. Right? So he is encouraging us, right? References to iron rods and broken Pottery probably demonstrates the ultimate victory uh, over the trade guild that dealt in metal and clay uh, back in Thyatira. Uh, uh, But the reality is we know that the ultimate victory is in heaven, right? Even though it seems like culture is winning, Jesus is telling them what? To hold on, to hold fast. And we know that ultimately what? Jesus wins. And then in verse 28, to the conqueror, to the overcomer, he says, I will give him the morning star. 
Right? No mystery about what that means. Revelation 22.16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about the things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. His promise is that what? One day, as believers in Christ, as followers of, of him, one day we will be with him for all eternity. And so he's encouraging us what? To hold on and to hold fast. Hold on and hold fast. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. God, in the culture in which we live that has people screaming at Christians to just tolerate, just to be a part, just go along, just compromise. But God, we hear your word today which clearly says to hold on and to hold fast and to not compromise, to to not tolerate. But to live in grace and truth. So God, give us wisdom to know that balance. Father, my prayer for our church is that we would know the word of God. That our actions would stem from and come out of the Bible. And Father, may Jesus be our example of how to live life in the culture that we find ourselves in. May we be salt and light. May we be a people of grace and truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.